tonight. Would you take the Word of God with me and turn to uh, the book of Psalms and uh, turn to the seventh Psalm, uh, Psalm 7. And we um, have been alternating between the book of Psalms and the book of Proverbs, and I uh, last week began in chapter 7, so Lord willing to this evening we're going to finish uh, this um, 7th Psalm. Uh, by way of reminder, if you remember last week, we can divide the psalm into two uh, sections. The first one, from verse 1 through 5, uh, the psalmist describes his circumstances, his sorrow, and at the same time his self-reflection, where because of the difficulties he's going through, he's asking the Lord, is it because of something that I've done? Is there iniquity in my hand? And that's always a good question to ask ourselves. And um, that first section is in it, but with the word selah, which is a pause, typically in a psalm, which is not just words, but it's put to music often, and so this would be a pause. And so the first part of the psalm is rather uh, somber and serious, but the second part really turns... Because by the end of the chapter, verse 17, he says, I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness. And so uh, we're going to read this psalm again uh, this evening and pick up where we left off from the second part, from verse 6 through verse 17, is His uh, triumph, His confidence, and His praise. And so how is sorrow turned to praise? And so we're going to find that here in this psalm, hopefully, it will help us this evening. But let's stand together for the reading of this psalm out of reverence for the word of the Lord. Notice Psalm 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1 and we'll read through verse 17. The word of God says, O Lord my God, in thee do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me. Lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces, while there is none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. Let the enemy persecute my soul and take it, yea, let him tread down my life upon the earth and lay mine honor in the dust. Selah. Arise, O Lord, in thine anger, Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. The Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness, and according to mine integrity that is in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end but establish the just. For the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. God judgeth the righteous. God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death, he ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors, 
Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and uh, wrought forth falsehood. He made a pit and digged it, and is fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. That's uh, the brow, the crown of the head. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you this evening for your word and how grateful we are to have this psalm that is helpful to us as we think about perhaps the personal struggles that we've gone through. I pray that you would help us to, as David often did, he learned to encourage himself in the Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to also develop this discipline of encouraging ourselves in the Lord. When we go through difficulties or when there are times when we may seem, it seems that things are unjust, that you would help us to find strength and comfort in you, and that at the end, that we might praise your name. And we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'd like to bring your attention to verse 17. He ends, I was thinking about a title for this psalm. I think the last verse is, uh, the psalm is really a Christian doe. And he ends with, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. Now the reason why I think it's a Christian doe is because when we begin in verse 6, he says, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger, lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake for me to the judgment. And I, I pause here, and I'll be honest with you, at first I thought to myself, how dare you talk to God that way? That's really how I felt. How dare you say to God, God, awake, as if God is sleeping? Right? Or arise, as if God is down. And so I thought to myself here, but I, yet as we look at the psalm, it seems evident as we think about the entirety of the book of Psalms is this is the, really the, the raw moment in the life of the psalmist who is really struggling with his enemies. He's really struggling with his persecutors and he is wondering why God has not already stepped in. Now, if you remember, we talked about last week some of the circumstances for this psalm. It is evident here that this psalm has faced false accusation. If you remember in verse 4, he says, uh, well, in verse 3, he says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, well, what, what was this? We went to 1 Samuel chapter 26. You remember the second time that, that David had an opportunity to kill King Saul, he didn't do it. He showed, he spared the life of Saul. And you remember on that day, he proved to Saul, he says, whoever is stirring you against me, if it is God, then let me offer a sacrifice. But if it is men that are stirring you up against me, then I've just proved to you that I have innocent hands and I have nothing against you because the conspiracy was that David is trying to overthrow Saul by force and David did nothing of the sort. And so here he says, if I have done this, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, and then he says, yea, I have delivered him that without cause is mine enemy. And so I believe here he's making a reference to the fact that he allowed Saul to go free, unharmed, even though he had the opportunity to take his life. Not just once, but at least twice that we know of. 
And so here it seems clear that David has been dealing with false accusation. By the way, he has been running away for his life, dwelling in caves. We're going to see uh, by the end of this message that David at the end, even after the second uh, deliverance that he faced from Saul, he gets discouraged and he ends up going to the Philistines and dwelling with the Philistines because he got discouraged. And so I think here we, we see the Psalms and it relates here, I believe, to the life of David where he's trying, probably thinking to himself, how long am I have to going to run for my life? He has already been anointed to be the next king. When is that going to happen? It seems that it's never going to happen. And so with those circumstances in mind, I believe here that, now as much as we may, as I mentioned, that I may criticize David for what he said, I think it is just here for, to show us what was in his heart at that moment. And I think that we have to uh, get to the place in the, when ourselves where we are honest, maybe in a public way where we can say, you know what, I have the same struggles as well. I often wonder, why do the wicked continue to prosper? That's a good question, by the way, and you find that all throughout the book of Psalms. When is God going to step in? And by the way, I think that's a valid question to ask. But let's see here how the psalmist begins that way, but then turns and ends up praising God. <laughs> At first, it seems, God, where are you? And by the end, he says, God, I praise you. So as we notice here in verse 6, he says, now picking up where we left off last week, we see here, first of all, that the psalmist questions the Lord. He questions the Lord. Now, although there's not a question mark here, I say that because you find this theme throughout the book of Psalms. Let me give you an example. For example, in Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2. The, that's actually a few pages if you want to turn there and look at that. In Psalm 13, verse 1 and 2, the psalmist says this, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Let me ask you this. Does God forget His people? No. But that's the question from the psalmist. Lord, how long are you going to forget me? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? Verse 2, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, have sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? And so understand here, he is asking this genuine question from his heart, Lord, how long is this going to go on? Uh, another example is Psalm 35, verse 17. Lord, how long wilt thou look on? Rescue my soul from their destruction, my darling from the lion. Here he basically says, Lord, how long are you going to look past me? How long are you going to ignore my plight? In Psalm 93, verse 3, again he says, Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. You see that? Now here, if you go back to Psalm chapter 6, notice what he says. He says, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, and awake uh, for me to the judgment that thou hast commanded. And so here, notice here, there is uh, the, 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 the statements from the psalmist when he says, Arise, O Lord, in thine anger, as if, number one, as if God is sleeping, and as if God is not angry with the wicked. Do you see that? Arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Lift up thyself because of the rage of mine enemies, as if God is laying down. <laughs> as if God is ignoring the plight of David. As if God is, doesn't know what's going on in the, in the life of David. And, 
And David has to somehow get a hold of God and say, God, wake up. Would you wake up? Would you look at my life and see where I am? Often I think people, we may find ourselves that way when we think that everything seems to be going wrong and we may think to ourselves, well, where is the Lord? Where is the Lord? And so is the Lord sleeping? Well, I don't think He's sleeping. Is the Lord inactive? No, He is not inactive. And so at first glance, the statement would seem really inappropriate to say to the Lord, and the psalmist seems even to be critical of the Lord, uh, why are you not arising, Lord? The psalmist seems to even indicate that the Lord is either doesn't know or doesn't care to make the things right. Uh, this seems, re, uh, by the way, as I mentioned here, this seems to be repeated throughout the book of Psalms. So it's not just foreign here to this reference. And so the question here is, isn't the Lord angry with the rage of the enemies? Think about David. How many years had he been running away from his life? How long did David have to deal with a man who was unrighteous and obviously raging and foaming at the mouth? How long was David going to have to deal with that? How long till God would step in? Doesn't the Lord execute righteous judgment? And so we see here that the struggle with the psalmist is, I don't think with the Lord's righteousness, rather I believe it's with the Lord's timing. Do you understand that? The struggle with the psalmist is not that he thinks that God is unrighteous, but I think it's with the Lord's timing. Because the question throughout the psalms keeps coming back, it's what? How long, Lord? How long is this going to go on? How long is Saul going to go on and be unpunished? David, up to this point, we might say, First uh, Samuel 26, he's done everything right where he hasn't taken the life of Saul. He says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. I'm not going to step in and do something that belongs only in the hands of God. I'm not going to do that. And so the question is here, Lord, how long? I'm already anointed to be king. Jonathan, Saul's son, said, I'm going to be king. Many of the people recognize that I'm going to be the next king. Saul twice from his mouth, after I spared him, said, Surely thy kingdom shall be established. So, Lord, how long? You see, I think here that uh, by the way, that I believe is the struggle with many of us. That we, I don't think that we may struggle in our lives with uh, God's righteousness and think that God is unfair with us. I think that often we may struggle with the time. Lord, when are you going to intervene? Lord, Lord when is the unrighteous going to be punished? When are the wicked going to eat the fruit of their own way? When is the time, Lord? And so the psalmist here, it says, Arise, I want it to be now. Isn't that much like the struggle of the flesh? We want deliverance now. We want it immediately. We want it on our timetable, not necessarily God's timetable. Now, if we keep this thing in mind, hold your place here and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. <clears throat> So in 2 Peter in chapter 3, uh, let's begin reading in verse 3 here. I want to see here because there, there's the, the same theme here. The idea is these believers were dealing with persecution. They were dealing with, um, uh, if you think about that day under Nero and under different Roman rulers and the Jews, strong persecution against the people there. Uh, notice what he says, 2 Peter 3 verse um, Three, he says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of His coming? 
For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For they will, for this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So there's a day coming when there's going to be the judgment and the perdition, the everlasting punishment of ungodly men. But beloved, he says, verse 8, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years. You see, we like to have things on our timetable, but we have to be reminded that God's timetable is different than ours. God does live outside of time. He says, in a thousand years as one day, verse 9, the Lord, here's what we have to remember, the Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but as long-suffering to us were, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with the great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, and the works that are therein, shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise... Look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Isn't that what we're looking for? We want things to be made right. Well, God's got His time when everything will be made right. Wherefore, but notice what He says in verse 14, Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of Him in peace without spot and blameless. Do you see here when He says, He said, Look, God, has promises, don't count God slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness. We know that God will do all things right, and remember that, that God doesn't view days like we do, and He's not inside and confined to time, and we might think at times, well, God, we want God to intervene at a particular time and a particular way, and He says, don't forget God's promises. You make sure that you don't use God's Timing and you not agreeing with God's timing as an occasion for you not to walk in holiness before God today. Because God is faithful and His promises are true. So here, the psalmist, if you go back to Psalm chapter 7, we see that he first questions the Lord uh, even in... Um, we move on, notice in verse 7. Secondly, really from verse 7 through most of the chapter, we see then that he expresses, he turns and he expresses faith and confidence in the Lord. He says, So shall the congregation of the people compass thee about. For their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. And notice what he says then in verse 8. The Lord... What's the next word? Shall judge. So, in verse 6, he says, Lord, arise. Step up now. So that, for your people's sake. But then he turns and he says, you know what? The Lord is going to judge. 
You see, he, he first questions the Lord. By the way, many of the Psalms will find that pattern. In the one moment, he questions the Lord's timing. Not necessarily whether the Lord's righteous or not, but really the Lord's timing. And then he turns and he says, you know what, this is what you're going to do, Lord. I know you're going to intervene because you are God. And so he says, the Lord shall judge the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to mine integrity that is in me. O let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end, but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. And so we go on from there here, and we see really from verse 7 onward, he begins by saying here that really if the Lord was to return on high in a place where judgment is exercised, you notice verse 7, it's kind of a transition. He says, he says uh, so shall the congregation of the people compass thee about, for their sakes, therefore, return thou on high. And as soon as he sees God on the throne, he says, So oh, wait a minute, God has always been on the throne. And now that he sees God on the throne and not what? Sleeping and lying down. All of a sudden now his focus changes. Now that God is high, he says in verse, in verse 8, The Lord shall judge the people. And so the Lord was to return on high in a place where judgment is exercised, and then the people would assemble once again around the Lord. He appeals uh, to the Lord for the sake of the people. And you think about, you know, David, As remember, he had been anointed king for a long time before he ever, ever came to the throne. He would be the next king to rule, the second king over Israel. And really the rule of David, I think we all agree that the rule of David would be remarkably better for the, for the people of Israel than the, the rule and the, king, the, the kingdom of Saul. And so why would the Lord not just uh, do this now because God is righteous? Uh, doesn't God want the man after God's own heart in charge now uh, for the people's sake? And so he is reminded in verse 8 that the Lord will indeed judge the people. But it's interesting here, so I, I, again, I, I don't think this is all disconnected because he says, verse 8, the Lord shall judge the people, and then he says this, judge me. Now, we may seem here that that's disconnected, but I don't think it's disconnected at all. Uh, you remember when uh, the Lord... Uh, I mean, uh, the Lord appeared to Isaiah, and Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6. And when Isaiah saw the Lord, by the way, God is going to call Isaiah to represent him among a, uh, a, a people who've been rebellious against God. And, and so uh, we think about Isaiah, we think about Isaiah as he's the servant of God. But you remember what Isaiah said when God's about to call him to go into a rebellious people? He says, when I saw the Lord, I said, woe is me, for I am undone. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. So I think it's consistent for us to see that God is on His throne. God will judge, but immediately brings the attention to ourselves. And say, well, uh, what is it that God uh, uh, needs to judge me for? And so the psalmist here is not boasting of his own inherent righteousness. I think as we've looked last week, he says, when he says in verse 8, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. We know that throughout the book of Psalms, the psalmist acknowledges that there is no inherent righteousness in him. But David, with regards to Saul, we could say he acted righteously. He did not take his life when he had the opportunity to do so. 
He was not seeking to kill Saul, even though he had been accused of doing so, even though he had the opportunity. He had proved himself to be righteous in his dealings with his fellow man, particularly Saul. And so David was here basically by what he says. David is willing to stand or to fall based upon his behavior and his conduct. He says, God, you're on your throne. You're going to judge the people, but let's begin with me. Judge me, Lord, according to my righteousness. And according to mine integrity that is in me. And he had already mentioned earlier in verse 3 and 4, Lord, if I have done those things. Remember he says in verse 3 and 4, If I have done this, what I've been accused of, if there be iniquity in my hands, if I have rewarded evil unto him that was at peace with me, notice verse 5, Let the enemy persecute my soul. May I be punished by the hand of men if I really had done that. But here now he says, Lord, you judge me uh, in my righteousness according to the integrity of my heart. And so he says then in verse 9, he turns now to the wicked and he says, Oh, let the wickedness of the wicked come to an end but establish the just, for the righteous God trieth the hearts and reigns. You see, the longing of the heart here is basically for the wickedness of the wicked to come to an end. And in contrast, for he, he is praying for God to establish the just. By the way, that is a promise that God made over and over again throughout His Word, that He will establish the just forever. And so his prayer here is in agreement with God. Would you establish the just? Of course he will. He says here, the righteous God, he says, he trieth the hearts and the reins. What's the the reins? Well, the idea of the heart and the reins here, this is a picture telling that the Lord, he knows the hearts. He knows men's thoughts. Men's thoughts. He knows their affections. He uh, knows the inward principles of men. And the springs of their actions, he knows all those things. Uh, He does not look at the outward appearance, but he looks at the heart. And the Lord is able to distinguish, he is able to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And he will, by the way. That's going to happen. He will distinguish between the righteous and the wicked. And so here, he encourages himself in the Lord. Uh, by the way, First Peter, if we think about a, a verse that talks about us being established forever, First Peter 5.10 says, But the God of all grace, who hath called us unto eternal glory and, uh, uh, to, um, to His eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that ye have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, settle you. God will establish the righteous. And so then he says in verse 10, he says, My defense is of God, which saveth the upright in heart. Do you see here how we're progressing here in this psalm? Because at first, in verse 6, he says, God, would you wake up, arise, do something? And then he says, my defense is of of God. God has already been my, he's been my defense all along. Which saveth the upright in heart. And so he rests here in, in the Lord, not that he is unbothered by the difficulties that he is going through, but that the Lord can be trusted 
even in the difficulties. He says in verse 11, God judgeth the righteous and God is uh, angry with the wicked every day. And so, you remember earlier, he sa- it, se- it seems like, God, how long? How long? Are- uh, notice, remember verse 6, Lord, arise, O Lord, in thine anger. Wake up. Why aren't you angry, Lord? Well, here, as he progresses, he says, actually, the Lord is angry with the wicked every day. He hasn't been sleeping. He hasn't been laying down at all. He is angry with the wicked every day. You see, so the thoughts, the wrong thoughts that were there initially, he has changed those, and now he has thoughts about the truth. Which reminds us of Philippians, we have to train ourselves to think rightly. And so we see here that first he questions the Lord, then he expresses faith and confidence in the Lord. And then notice in verse 12, uh, we see here that he reminds himself of the end of the wicked. Again, this pattern is seen throughout the book of Psalms. Uh, notice verse 12, he says, If he turn not... Now, in verse 11, he says, God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. And when he says, If he turn not... Now, the he here is not God, it's the wicked. If the wicked doesn't turn, he will wet God, he. So, the first he is the wicked, the second he is God. If he, the wicked, turn not, he, God, will wet his sword. He, God, hath bent his bow and made it ready. Um, so God has, verse uh, even into verse 13, he says, He hath prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. So, God has prepared for him the, the Bible says, the instruments of death, and God ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. And notice here, verse 14, he says, Behold, he travaileth with iniquity. Now, the he now is not God, that's the wicked. Why? Why we say that? Well, because God does not travail with iniquity. He says, hath conceived mischief. God does not conceive mischief. And brought forth falsehood. God does not bring forth falsehood. So that's now the wicked. Now, the entirety of verse 14. Verse 14 is an interesting verse. Actually, I read through the psalm a number of times. And I didn't get get it until actually late in my study of this psalm. But do you notice here that it says, Behold, he travaileth with iniquity, and hath conceived mischief, and brought forth falsehoods. The entirety of verse 14 is an imagery about the wickedness of David's persecutors. His persecutors are likened to a woman with child. He talks about conception, labor, and delivery. That's what he's talking about. Notice, travaileth, that's the word for labor. Conceived, well, that's the word for conception. And then, brought forth is give birth. So he says here, The wicked travaileth with iniquity, the wicked hath conceived mischief, and the wicked brought forth falsehood. And so the first one he says, uh, the wicked hath travailed with iniquity. Uh, Well, uh, the word travail is the idea is, is the labor, 
the, the pains that come, right, before the baby is delivered. And so here he travaileth. That means that the persecutor, he travails as a woman with child. By the way, when the woman with child, when she is travailing, when she is laboring, what happens? Well, she is eager to bring forth her child. She is eager to go through that <laughs> to get to the end. And so here, the persecutor travails as a woman with child who is eager to bring forth her child. So is the persecutor eager to bring iniquity forth. He can't wait to bring it forth. Just like a woman who is in travail can't wait for the child. Why? Because that's the end of the pain. He then says, and so, by the way, the travail that we think about, he then mentions, the second one he mentions is, uh, the word conceived. Now, which one comes first, conception or travailing? Well, conception comes first. So travail is the outcome of conception. Now, here he says, verse 14, and hath conceived mischief. So mischief, evidently, as we look here, was conceived in the heart. He's been talking about God tries the hearts and the reins. And so the eagerness to bring forth iniquity is the product of what is first conceived in the heart. And so the agitation of the body of the travail is first because there's something that has been conceived inwardly. And so he says that's the same with the wicked. When you look at all the, the agitation of the wicked, it comes because of something that's happened in his heart that's been conceived in his heart. Just like a woman conceived. So a wicked man has conceived mischief in his heart. But then there's the third word, and that is the word brought forth. He says in verse 14, and brought forth falsehood. Well, falsehood. Uh, what is the product of conceiving mischief and travail with iniquity? Well, I would put it this way, that the child of falsehood is always the result of the conception of mischief. What is conceived in mischief cannot bring forth any good. You see, what is brought forth? What comes out of that? Falsehood. So something is conceived in the heart. What is that? Mischief. Then there's the travail of iniquity, the agitation, and what comes out of that travail is the bringing forth of falsehood. You see that? So the lies that are spoken by people, where does that come from? That child of lie, that falsehood. What does that come up? Where does that come from? Well, you see the agitation, but then ultimately you have to go back to where it was conceived. And so he says here that the wickedness of the heart can be traced back. The wickedness, the, the things that we see, the falsehood, the false accusation that David was facing. Where does that all come from? It comes from the wickedness of the heart of man. That's where it comes from. That's where it was conceived. You know, when we, when we look at, at, at the world as it is, the condition of the world, we look at the behavior. Let us never forget that that behavior was conceived somewhere. Let's not be shocked. And say, well, I can't believe people are behaving that way. No. The child of falsehood has always been conceived in mischief. And so, 
he explains that in verse 15, then he says, He made a pit and digged it and has fallen to the ditch which he made. He says in verse 16, His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent dealing shall come down upon his own pate. Um, Proverbs 11.5 says, The wicked shall fall in his own wickedness. And I think that's what basically David is saying here. You see, so he's, he is, um, reminds himself of the end of the wicked. Now, there's an ultimate end, we know that, but sometimes there's an end that we find even in this life. And by the way, Saul did meet that end. You remember, he fell on his own sword. He tried to thrust through David with a spear, and he ended up following on his own sword. What he tried to do, he did it to himself. Now, he probably didn't even realize at that moment, but that's exactly what happened. God probably said, you want to kill my servant with your sword, Saul? You're going to kill yourself with your own sword. And so in verse 16, he says, His mischief shall return upon his own head, and his violent dealings shall come down upon his own pate. Well, that's exactly what happened to Saul. Notice the words that he uses there. Shall return, shall come down upon his own pate. In other words, David, he's resting in the Lord. He's been using now this word, Shall. God is going to do this, and I'm going to leave it in the hands of God. I'm going to trust God. Now, what, what did David have? David had the, anointed, the anointing on him to be the next king. And he had to know that God, who anointed him, would make him king one day. And so he had to say to himself, God's going to do this. I have to wait for his timing. And fourth, we see the praise of the Lord. And so in verse 17, he says, after he's encouraged himself in the Lord, we've moved a long way from verse 6. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. So you see, he kind of begins by almost indicting God. God doesn't seem to be righteous. Why is God sleeping? Why is God ignoring? Why is God not doing anything? But by the end of the psalm, he says, I'm going to praise the Lord according to his righteousness. Why? Because God does everything right. And he does everything at the right time. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. And so what he had to do is he had to see God lifted up again. You see, what, what, what did he have to be reminded of? This is a good reminder for us. What, how do we, do we need to see God? We must never see God as if God is sleeping or laying down or ignoring us. We always have to see God high and lifted up. By, by the way, that's a good reminder. You know, a lot of people were, were banking on elections yesterday. Elections happened and people, oh yeah, elections. And uh, they have their hope in men. That's a mistake. And when they don't get their way, they say, oh, well, God's laying down. No, 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 God is not laying down. He is wide awake. He knows where he's going and he is high and lifted up. And we better see him that way. Or else we're going to be discouraged. Now, with all this here, we see that um, if you let's go back to First Samuel, and, and I'll be done here. Let me close here with the example here. It's an interesting progression because I was looking at the timing. Okay, so if you go to First Samuel twenty-four, 
David had his first opportunity to kill King Saul in the, in, the, in the cave. He did not take his life, even though his men encouraged him to take Saul's life. He didn't do it. He got the, Saul's attention the next day, told him, hey, I had the opportunity to, to kill you. I didn't take that opportunity. Saul commended him. He says, surely thy throne shall be established. So on. Well, we're two chapters later in 1 Samuel 26. Uh, David has a second opportunity to take the life of Saul. Uh, Abner failed, then protect the king. And so the next morning, after he, uh, he took, I think it was his spear, uh, he lets the king know that he spared his life again. And so the accusation that people have been making against him have been false because if that was true, he would have taken Saul's life. All right, so we know, based on 1 Samuel 26, that David was righteous in his dealings with Saul. Uh, notice verse uh, 21 of So we read the first part of the chapter last week. Now we pick up verse 21. Notice, Then said Saul, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will no more more do thee harm, because my soul was precious in thine eyes this day. Behold, I have played the fool, and I have erred exceedingly. And David answered and said, Behold the king's spear, and let one of the young men come over and fetch it. And the Lord rendered to every man his righteousness and his faithfulness. By the way, it's not what David has been. He's been nothing but righteous with regards to Saul. He hasn't taken his life. He's been righteous in his dealings. That's what exactly what he says in Psalm 7. Lord, you know that I've been righteous in my dealings with Saul. He says, For the Lord deliver thee into my hand today, but I would not stretch forth mine hand against the Lord's anointed. Verse 24, And behold, as thy life was much set by this day in mine eyes, so let my life be much set by in the eyes of the Lord, and let him deliver me out of all tribulation. This is what uh, David says to Saul. He says to Saul, God's going to deliver me out of tribulation, and he's going to deliver me again and again, and he's done it, he's proved it today. Verse 25, Then Saul said to David, Blessed be thou, my son David. Thou shalt both do great things, and also shalt still prevail. So David went on his way, and Saul returned to his place. And I I paused there, but then I kept reading. And notice what happens. And David said in his heart, Now, would you say here it was a spiritual high for David? Coming out of that, delivered from Saul the second time, Return, Saul leaves, and now he's left alone. And right after that moment, David said in his heart, I shall now perish one day by the hand of Saul. I think perhaps we could insert Psalm 7 right there. God, I, I've done everything right. I, I've treated your anointed righteously. If I had done this, if I had done what they said that I, I've done, if iniquity was in my hand, then let me be persecuted and let me perish. But you know God, my righteousness. And so God, why are you laying down? And here he gets to the place after having this, this victory. He says, I'm going to die by the hand of Saul. And there is nothing better for me than that I should speedily escape into the land of the Philistines. And Saul shall despair of me to seek me any more in any coast of Israel. So shall I escape out of my hand. Now, People will say, well, you know, David knew that Saul would keep chasing him. And I I believe that. I believe that David knew that. But that's the first time that you find him saying, I'm going to die at the hand of Saul. He hasn't said that. It's almost like saying, he's saying here, I'm not going to be the next king. I'm going to die. If he dies by the hand of Saul, Saul's still the king. So he's never going to be the king. And, And so David became discouraged. 
And perhaps we can uh, uh, bring Psalm 7 and think to God, are you, are you going to step in and do something? And he's going to spend some time with the Philistines. Isn't that strange? The man who killed Goliath is going to live with the Philistines. You read uh, in um, uh, chapter 27, after he becomes discouraged, uh, chapter 28, Notice verse 1 and 2 of chapter 28. And it came to pass in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for warfare to fight with Israel. And Achish said unto David, Now that's the Philistine king. Know thou surely that thou shalt go out with me to battle, thou and thy men. And David said to Achish, Surely thou shalt know what thy servant can do. And Achish said to David, Therefore will I make thee keeper in mine head forever. David is about to go with the Philistines to go fight against Israel. Now, in 1 Samuel 29, now we know in between that, Saul goes to the wish of Endor and all that stuff. But you go to chapter 29, the, the different princes and the rulers of the Philistines, they come to King Achish and they're like, you're not going to send David with us. You're not going to do that. And so David basically is rejected by the other Philistine princes and lords. And then notice in 1 Samuel chapter 30, what happens? Well, he leaves from being with the Philistines, chapter 30, verse 1. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day, that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire. And all the women and the children are gone. Man, that, that must have been devastating. Now, th- I want you to think about it. He had ran to the Philistines to find refuge from Saul. Now he is about to go. He, he, he had left. They had left their families in Ziklag to go fight with the Philistines against the children of Israel. And then the Philistines rejected them. And so now they're going back to Ziklag and they find that the city's burned down and their women and the children are gone. And so notice verse 6. The men, the men of David are about to, to stone David. Notice verse 6. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his, for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord. Now that, this would be a turnaround for David. Why? Because perhaps in that moment, when he thought, I'm running... So that I can be safe. And he find that even when he is uh, what he thought would be the safest place he could be, tragedy happens. And it is at that moment, by the way, he's been away from the Lord. I think since the beginning of chapter, of chapter 27, when his heart was discouraged, he says, I'm gonna, Saul's going to kill me, and so I'm not going to be king. And so he runs away. He's been discouraged and he's been defeated. But now in that moment, he encourages himself in the Lord. He finds that it was not about how, what he could do to preserve his life. But he puts his life in the hands of God again. And so perhaps we could look at this journey, uh, 1 Samuel 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, and take Psalm 7, where he is discouraged. God is he's not going to do anything. He's sleeping. He's ignoring me. But then as David reminds himself of, of who God is, 
that God is indeed righteous and that God is high and lifted up and God, that the God will judge and that God will make things right. He sees now once again the Lord high and lifted up and he is in the place where he ought to have been all, all along. And so David did something that we all have to learn to do. You know, I, I think that sometimes we may be discouraged by the fact that we are discouraged. <laughs> Where we think that as Christians, somehow, for some reason, we should never be discouraged. Well, that's just not reality. We understand because we are human beings that we're going to have some struggles and there are going to be times in our lives where we will question the Lord. And in those moments when we question the Lord in our hearts are the moments where we have to change our thinking. And by the way, it takes practice to do that. Why? Because things happen. Circumstances happen. Things don't turn out the way you think to do. And all of a sudden you begin to question God. And in those moments of questioning God, don't be shocked by those questions. Realize that you are but flesh. But use that moment to turn and to think rightly about God. Ultimately, I think it boils down to this. Here he says at the end, the last verse is, I will praise the Lord according to His righteousness. The moment we stop serving the Lord is the moment we think that God is no longer righteous with us. Or God is unfaithful somehow towards us. But as soon as we see that God is faithful and He is righteous towards us, then we will serve the Lord. You know, I'm reminded of a Joseph. Joseph sees at the end of his life, well, not the end of his life, but at the end of that period when he meets his brothers and he says, uh, Ye thought evil against me, but God meant him to good. Ye sold me, but God sent me. What is that? He encourages himself to the Lord. Right? So, two options here. You think about, well, where is God? Why have my brothers not been judged? Why has not God vindicated me already? But instead he saw that God has something for him to do and to accomplish in, that, in those difficult circumstances. But had he seen God as unrighteous, maybe he would not have been where he was. God is unfair. Why is God allowing this? Why is God sleeping? Why is God ignoring me? Those are all things that are lies. They're all lies. God has not forgetten, forgotten us. God is not laying down. God is not sleeping. He is on his throne. Now I'm reminded of Stephen when he was stoned. You know, we talked about Stephen in Acts chapter 7. He was stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. And when he was stoned to death, the Lord, the Lord, Jesus Christ, who is said to be seated at the right hand of the Father, was standing. And, the, and Stephen saw the Lord standing. And so we may say, well, where's God delivering Stephen in that moment? Where's God's deliverance? Well, God's deliverance was in the face of Jesus Christ. Actually, I don't think he died as a martyr. I think he fell asleep, as the Bible says, when he saw the Lord. And so, in that moment, what we have to do is we have to not look at the rocks, not look at the people who are fomenting and who are rushing on Stephen. At that moment, we have to go like Stephen and say, look to the Lord. And say, the Lord is on his throne. And he actually, he sees me. He knows what I'm going through, and I'm going to commit my life to Him. And that's what we have to do, and that's what David learns to do in this psalm. And so may we learn to do the same.